Welcome to the Assembly of Silence Radio Hour. And here we are. My guest for this episode uh, is becoming a, a regular guest on the podcast. Young gentleman by the name of Doyle Baxter, who's a co-host of an excellent podcast called Cryptosophy. This will be his first video appearance, so if you're listening to this just on the audio feed, you might want to go to the YouTube channel. There'll be a link in the show note description so you can see what we look like when we're talking to each other. In this conversation, I think it's fair to say that we're describing civilizational decline and the question, the extent to which that is sort of baked into the pie, I guess, uh, if I'm really trying to just derive a theme. And I've for a long time now been wanting to discuss some of the Taoist texts that I love and cherish so much. And this seems like a wonderful time to introduce a couple of key ideas that really frame the issue wonderfully well, and I think uh, in an unusual way. So I will go and grab that text, because I actually I grabbed the wrong book here. So I'll be right back with that book. Okay, so this is from a short, what shall we call it? Short piece of writing entitled The Fisherman and the Woodcutter by Xiao Yang. It's uh, translated by Thomas Cleary. And I suppose this is trying to find a date. It looks like uh, we could say several hundred years BCE. So it's, it's fascinating when you're considering the troubles that we're in now. Uh, and obviously there are, you know, we, we discuss in this episode some of the technological aspects of things that really make it seem so different. But on some very fundamental level, the pattern, we might say, remains consistent throughout all known human history. So I'm going to read just a couple of passages here, and they're very short. Those who value conduct invariably get interested in justice. Those who value talk invariably get interested in profit. How distant justice and profit are from each other. When the world is on the verge of order, people invariably value justice. When the world is on the verge of chaos, people value profit. When they value justice, the trend of the times is to be deferential. When they value profit, the trend of the times is to be predatory. In those few sentences, there's more to contemplate than in all the political commentary that I hear, and frankly, in most of the conversations that I have. Conversations tend to be drawn out. You have a number of different perspectives that are interacting. The conciseness of the wisdom 
in some of these Taoist texts is stunning. The choice of words, of course, I don't know the original Chinese. I have great admiration for Thomas Cleary. I find his translations to be amongst the most resonant of any that I've come in contact with. I'm not a scholar on the subject. I'm not a scholar on any subject. I'm a wanderer through the, the intellectual space in search of kernels of wisdom to try to get myself oriented to cope with the insanity that characterizes the times we're in. These are amongst the most effective pieces of wisdom I've ever encountered. I'll offer you one more. I'm reading this backwards, by the way. I started with the third statement, and then I read the second statement, and now I'm going to read the first statement. A fisherman said to a woodcutter, When the world is on the verge of order, people invariably value conduct. When the world is on the verge of chaos, people invariably value talk. When people value conduct, then the trend of the times is to sincerity and genuineness. When people value talk, then the trend of the times is to falsehood and deception. This is a talk podcast. I am doing my best to try to keep things as real as possible, but I'm doing so within the context of a media that is fundamentally deceptive. So there is a contradiction inherent in the effort. I don't know if there's any way to do anything like this that would not have such a foundational problematic. I think that's probably why the Taoists also say those who say don't know and those who know don't say. But I also know that the Taoists say that the one of the characteristics of the disintegration of society is that those who have something to say don't share. Those who have something of value don't share it. So it seems to me that the best thing that we can offer is whatever we have discovered to be the greatest wisdom. And in conversation with others, I always learn something when I'm having a conversation with someone, even if I disagree with them. But as to the real matter at hand here, because we are a civilization in decline, and the wheels are coming off, and there is a lack of meaning, people are desperately searching around for something to repair the situation, and I think the most intelligent uh, amongst us are kind of throwing up our hands in dismay at what we see happening. Leadership is a disaster. The economy is, anyone who looks at it is like, well, that's not going to work much longer. And the international situation is also very unstable, very disturbing. Environmentally, we're seeing, you know, I don't need to go down this laundry list. So we are in a crisis and we're trying to figure out what to do about it. Let's see if we can get ourselves as oriented as possible through an understanding. So now that we have a sense, perhaps, of the severity of the situation, then we can start preparing ourselves. And then the question, of course, is what is the best preparation? And I would maintain that, well, from the Taoist perspective, the gold elixir is always the response to any question as to what one should do. What does the gold elixir mean? 
It means developing a relationship within yourself so that all fluctuations in the mind are settled and that you are then receptive to the actual conditions happening, which means that you can accept the outcome, which means that you're not trying to control things, because even under the best of circumstances, it's very difficult to control what ends up happening. The law of unintended consequences works its way into every aspect of existence, and so we're not typically good at getting the results we're looking for. We might be able to achieve them under certain very constrained conditions, but when things get more chaotic and the situation is far from ideal, well, then the chances of us being able to steer this thing in the direction we want it to go become even less. And so what are we to do? Well, we're to accept that there are things beyond our control. And we need the wisdom to be able to discern between those things which are outside of our control. And so to try to do something about them is absolutely foolhardy. And the small number of things that are within our control, to dedicate ourselves to that, whatever they may be, even if it's only our state of mind or our emotional reaction to things, because God knows those are the only things that we truly have control over, and I guess it's fair to say that some of us don't. Many of us don't. In some ways you can say that that is what really characterizes the collapse of society. It's when people lose control of themselves. And that's why we're such a highly medicated society. Because people cannot control their thoughts and their feelings. And the irony, of course, is that, well, those are the only things that we have any hope of really controlling. Because everything else is a negotiation at best. I think I've gone on about this long enough. I'm sure there's much else that could be said, but of course, talk is cheap. And, uh, and this episode is already long, as it is. I would like to call your attention to just one more thing, which is the YouTube channel Taiji Reality, uh, part of my effort here, focuses on, on this issue of the gold elixir. That's really, I think, in many respects, the prime goal. It involves a relatively formalized system called the Bagua, which consists of the trigrams, which are basically units of yin and yang, and which comprise the hexagrams of the I Ching. And it's a theory about how those sim symbols interrelate and how their significance can be interpreted within the context of the gold elixir. So if you're interested in that sort of thing, which I think of as being essentially the solution to the dilemma, all of the various problems that we turn over here on the Assembly of Silence, uh, and which hopefully we turn over a number of times before taking them home, and, you know, we don't really need to take home the problems and the issues. We can turn them over as we come across them and then just take the gold elixir home. I'm working on that. I don't know how far I am along that path, but I'm further along than the beginning of the path. I guess that's about all I know at this point. At any rate, I hope that you will sit back or sit forward or stand up or run around or do whatever it is you do when you listen to podcasts and enjoy the following conversation with myself and Doyle Baxter of Cryptosophy.
So tell me what's going on there. And uh, do you have thoughts about what you might want to uh, want to discuss this time? Yeah, well, th- things are things are great here. Um, I just had my 27th birthday yesterday. Oh, happy birthday. So uh, thank you. Thank you. Another another year under the belt and another kind of opportunity to I was reflecting a lot this morning just on the varied and diverse experiences I've had in such a short life and kind of, you know, just thanking God for all of it, but then also just having the profound realization that, you know, you could be my age, you could be 40, you could be 50 and really have not anything go right. And you still might have 20, 30, 40 years after that to make it right. Hmm. And uh, it's Hmm. just more of having that perspective that life um, while it's so short, it can also be so long. And as long as you don't dwell, then there's, um, there's always, you know, forward, uh, to go. So thinking about that a little bit, things are well, um, I was at the Indy 500 last Sunday. <laughs> okay. Well, wait, before we go to the Indy 500, was, let's, let's talk a little bit about what you just said. Cause there's a number of interesting things in there. Yeah. I mean, 27 is, you know, it's a, that's a, a ripe young age, I guess you could say. And, uh, I'm, I'm well over twice that. And, uh, it is amazing the variety of what can happen within a lifetime. And, you know, sometimes when we think about, for instance, the, the lifetime of Jesus, you know, he didn't live a very long life, but the amount of, you know, impact that can occur on the basis of a short life is tremendous, you know, and, and the amount of triviality in a very long life is also uh, a, a possibility that can't be uh, ignored. So, yeah, totally. Well, in, in Christ's example as well, I mean, he was basically living at home until he was 30. As far as and we then know. in three years comes out. I mean, you know, just, there's right. a lot of speculation there. And, you know, some people think that you know, due to the nature of the teachings, he may have done some traveling. Uh, but yeah, again, I mean, there's so much speculation. We really, we really have no idea. But yeah, that's certainly the story, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and so you can you can really you can really do a lot um, do a lot with a little, and it, it's also true, like you said, that you can do a lot of nothing with a whole lot of life. And yeah, I don't know. I there's some interesting stuff we could talk about about Jesus. I'm reading a book right now called The Dionysian Gospel that I can tell you about a bit later. Hmm. Um, that sounds interesting. But, um, yeah, I think you. I think you'd be all over it. Is that actually uh, like one of the Gnostic Gospels? I don't re- recall hearing the Dionysian Gospel. No, so it's a so it's a scholarly uh, scholarly work. I've got it here on video uh, mm-hmm. by this fellow uh, Dennis McDonald, hmm. and he um, is sort of at the end of a very long academic career, sort of paving the way, creating a new genre of both biblical studies and classical studies, sort of at the same time. Uh, a lot of people read the Gospels and the New Testament in general in a vacuum from the classical literary milieu that it arises from. And there's sort of been this great divorce between the New Testament scholars and the classicists that has perhaps led to the stagnation of both fields. And so Mm. MacDonald has spent his career trying to bring them back together and here at the very end of his life publishes, I think it's three books. Um, One is called um, Mark and Homer. The second is called Luke and Virgil. And then the third one is called the Dionysian Gospel. And he argues kind of 
with a, just a dramatic tour de force of both biblical scholarship and classical study that the, the ancient gospel writers were absolutely not only familiar with the great classical texts that we, that have come down to us, but they were so intimately familiar with them that they were even imitating them um, when they wrote the gospels. And in, in the gospel of John in particular, um, what McDonald argues is that essentially there have been three versions of the gospel of John that you can sort of piece together if you get your microscope out and really study the text. And if you go back to what he reconstructs as like the first version of John's gospel, it's actually uh, in some cases a line for line and scene for scene uh, retelling of the, of the Bacchae, which is a play by Euripides. And essentially what the author is doing is, is saying, Hey, listen, no, like Bacchus Dionysus, um, he's real. And his name is Jesus of Nazareth. And he was my teacher and I heard him speak and I, I witnessed his miracles. And this was specifically written for, you know, Greek speaking people in Western Turkey um, who had a lot of devotion to Dionysus. And it was essentially sort of like a, combination of um competition but also like um embracing of sort of like dionysian mystery religions and bringing them together with christianity and like that was hmm. one of the very first um you know christian cults there in that area so fascinating book and i'm, I'm only a little bit through it but i've i've uh, been i'm very familiar with the argument that i've because i've heard it uh told a couple of different places so i'm excited so, to read read it would it be fair to say that that's something that might blur the distinction between the, the pagan and the, uh, how do we characterize it, the Abrahamic? Yeah, totally. Well, one of the things that I've been thinking a lot about recently is that, you know, we, a lot of Christian thinkers, I think, struggle with the, the you know, kind of the perennial question, what does Athens have to do with Jerusalem? And some of my reading and thinking of late has led me to, like, the conclusion or at least the idea that perhaps that that question is is not founded like it's an ill-founded question and that it's more along the lines of you know what does athens have to do with jerusalem well perhaps the distinct perhaps there's a distinction there without a difference i've heard an interesting theory that goes something like uh after the you know the lost tribes essentially became uh, a diaspora and part of that diaspora found its way into Greece. And so there was a, a kind of an audience of relocated or who were originally Jews who would have some receptivity to the, the gospel because essentially it was a Jewish or Hebrew uh, point of view. Uh, but of course, within the context of their newfound culture, it would make sense that there would be a kind of um, a bridging that would happen, that there would be efforts to, to make it compatible with the dominant narrative of that culture. Yeah, I'm no expert on, on this topic in particular, but I do know that the Jews in diaspora in Alexandria, for example, Philo of Alexandria is like the, the big name that comes to mind, was a contemporary of Jesus's and was at that time essentially uniting Jewish messianic hope with like Platonic philosophy. And I think it's from Philo that we even perhaps get the, the sort of, you know, before, long before the gospel, about a hundred years before the gospel of John is written, sort of Philo is talking about how the logos 
of Greek philosophy will become incarnate um, in the Messiah, in the Jewish Messiah. Mm-hmm. I think that that's definitely right. And I think it's probably a, a diaspora that's maybe far older than, than we think there's, you know, there's some really, in- I, I, I've read the Iliad a bunch of times and I have a really bad habit of bringing every conversation back to it. <laughs> um, but the uh, there's a few stories in, uh, in the Iliad that get told specifically um, I'm, I'm thinking this is, it's the very beginning of book six, um, Glaucus and Diomedes meet and they're about to start fighting. And, um, there's this beautiful, like exchange of like, uh, telling each other their sort of lineage and their story. And Glaucus is a Trojan ally from Lycia. And he tells the story of, I think it's his like maybe great, great grandfather or something like this, um, a fellow by the name of Bellerophon. And it's essentially this story of a guy who, um, you know, wasn't of, of royal birth, but basically everywhere he went, um, he would rise to the top and he was the servant in his master's house and the master's wife wanted to sleep with him and he refused. And so she cried rape and then he was cast away and exiled from Corinth. Um, where he wins a whole bunch of challenges and then ends up rising up to basically be the king of the, the the land he was exiled to. And it's like, gosh, you know, that story is super familiar. It's like actually basically line for line, the same as uh, the, the story of Joseph from the book of Genesis. Um, you know, even like the same sort of parallels of, um, you know, cause it's, uh, is it Fotiar or um, Photius that, that Joseph is serving in Egypt and the, the wife, accuses him of rape and he doesn't do it and he gets locked in prison. And then, you know, he interprets some dreams for Pharaoh and then ends up being, you know, second in command essentially, or like Pharaoh just becomes a figurehead to Joseph. And so it's like these little illusions or these, these common myths that sort of are sort of another part of this kind of this thinking, like maybe the the distinction is, is not so hard and fast. And like, what if it's, you know, to, to recast a phrase that I really like, what if it really is turtles all the way down, you know, (laughs) and what if it's, what if it's Christianity? Like, what if it's Judeo Christianity? What if it's like Greek hyphen Jewish hyphen Christian all the way back into a very deep past? And what if it's more, uh, what if it's more archetypical stories, you know, sort of uh, that, that, that fundamentally the truth is there regardless of the telling that there for those who have ears you can see you can hear and and there's a a pattern and it's repeated because it has value and and it doesn't you know i think that some people find this kind of uh reconsideration of the sacred texts very unsettling because it suggests well this is not the original <laughs> you know and so that brings the whole thing into question but in some respects i would say that the more often you see parallels the greater the strength of the story because we're looking at archetypical forms in a certain sense and 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 there's a, a fundamental truth to a lot of these narratives even though there may be little differences uh certainly a lot of difference in style um but there may also be some you know a fair amount of change in the action it's not as if the story of joseph lines up completely right with uh with this um with this passage in the iliad but there's enough there to recognize that these are archetypes that people were working with and and uh considered to have enough value to 
continue their life. You could say that in a way that archetypes are, they have a life of their own. And, and the stronger they are, the longer they persist. Just like any species or any, any individual. Yeah. I think that's exactly right. Uh, you know, I, I, you're right. A lot of people point to sort of studies in comparative religion and like use them to like, you know, dismantle or like take away credence from, um, you know, any particular religious faith. Um, you know, like just for example, that there's a Moses figure in Egyptian mythology and, you know, there's, you know, obviously Christ figures in basically every basically every religion, you can find some sort of hero myth that sort of mimics the life of Christ in some way. And I, I, I agree with you. I think that what that does, rather than take away from like the truth of these statements, it actually is the great reinforcement. And I think if you think about like, what does it truly mean, you know, for Christ to come for the reconciliation of all mankind, you know, no longer the, the, the specific covenant the specific and exclusive covenant with Israel, but rather a new covenant, a universal one that brings the entire world uh, into communion with the father. It's like, well, that's exactly what you would expect to see. You would totally expect it to resonate within the universality of, of religion, because like, that's what it would look like. Um, that's what it would look like to, to reconcile all things to the father. Well, yeah, I think, uh, Philip K. Dick has a wonderful way of describing that in his Vallis trilogy. Uh, uh, Vallis is one book of a, of a trilogy that's kind of uh, concerned with some of these issues. And if I understand what he's saying correctly, he's saying that in essence, Christ is a manifestation of a lineage of those who are able to fill themselves with the Logos, to be the vehicle for the Logos, and that they're in a continual struggle against, uh, you might say, the arrogance of humanity, the, the tendency for civilizations to go their own way instead of following the way of the Lord, and that that drama is kind of continually moving towards, I guess, there's a, a Tilius where it's uh, a, a kind of a showdown, and that at some point or another, there's going to be a showdown between what he refers to as the iron prison, if I remember correctly. It's, it's the iron prison versus the logos, and that ultimately the logos will win, that it will, that, that, that all civilizations are turned to dust, and that the, the way of the cosmos ultimately asserts itself. You know, that's maybe a little bit more abstract, but uh, I find it to be a satisfactory resolution. I think that, you know, a lot of these things do challenge a literalist interpretation. And so, um, you know, the those who would take every word of the Bible as being the word of God, I think that that does pose a, a pretty serious problem for that perspective, particularly if it's in a literalist form. If you think of it more as poetry, maybe there's um, enough wiggle room to be able to work through it with uh, where everything continues to make sense. Uh, but clearly, you know, this is uh, something which I think is rather challenging to uh, many of the churches out there. Yeah, no, I agree. And it's, it's, one, of the, it's one of those things that I've never really understood. I, I'm not I wouldn't consider myself like really even well brushed up on precisely 
what like the doctrine of inspiration, divine inspiration of the scriptures really means, even in a Catholic context. Hmm. But one of the things that I have, have always found sort of refreshing is that, you know, the, it is the kind of dismissal, if you will, of a literalist interpretation of, of some of the texts that we read. And, and I think that anybody that's done a little bit of writing, even if it's just for fun or like keeping a journal, like you realize how difficult it is to piece together a work at all. And like, if you've ever edited a paper for publication, right, it's like you have version one and version two and version three, and then you mess with things. And, you know, this is all, you know, pre-digital. And so like all, like potentially some of the early drafts get circulated among certain of your friends. And Mm -hmm. then there's an argument later on about which one, you know, is the thing. And it's like, well, you know. Or maybe the the early drafts are the only ones that survive, you know. Yeah, exactly. Uh, So yeah, there's just a million different ways in which uh, it gets to be a pretty confusing terrain. Absolutely. But I think it's also the case that, you know, the ancient world, you know, poetry was incredibly important. And and a poetic way of speaking was really sort of like the production value of its day. Uh, you know, it was a way of making something into not just information, but something that was that had color and life and and excitement and marvel to it, and that. Uh, Poets were continually competing. There was a, uh, you know, a, a a hierarchy, you might say, of of poets, and and really the culture uh, held them in great esteem. It was incredibly important. So to to think of it as a a, a literal document, any of the scriptures. I mean, if you're talking about uh, the sutras. You know, uh, or the Vedas. I mean, all all of the great sacred writings. I think were fundamentally poetic in nature. That was the language of the ancient world. Yeah. So it's, I, it's I a really strange like what you thing said about to, like the sort of competitive element of poetry. Um, mm-hmm. Maybe you know, switching gears from like scripture to kind of more um, of just like the you could call it like the the great books of the Western tradition. One of the things I have always found fascinating is the sort of poetic one-upsmanship that seems to be the hallmark of like genuine attempts at Western poetry. Like you see, you know, Homer comes on the scene and essentially invents the West and, you know, 700 to 800 years later, Virgil comes along and like his primary goal is I need to outdo the Iliad and the Odyssey. So I'm going to retell both and I'm going to do it in half the amount of space. Um, Mm. And he does that. And then just, you know, a a couple hundred years or maybe a hundred years later, 200 years later, Statius comes along and it's like, well, Virgil is my hero and I'm going to, I'm going to one up him. And he writes the Thebaid and, you know, Augustine is writing his confessions, which is just a retelling of the, the Aeneid in light of his own personal life story. And then, you know, Dante comes along and he has an opportunity to, you know, write about all the poets in hell. And he writes about himself as being, you know, one of their members. And then, you know, Milton comes along and talks about paradise lost and like even does, you know, there's this, 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 this constant sort of competition in, in the Western literature, literary tradition. That's just so fascinating, especially when you consider that, you know, going all the way back to the ancient Greeks, so much of these original, uh, compositions were in the con the context of um, of competition, right? So a tragedy is literally the goat song, and like, why is it called the goat song? Because like way back in the day, these bards would sing, 
and the one who kind of won the poetic competition would be awarded a goat you know and <laughs> really? then that comes to its full that comes to its full maturity in in Athens the the great uh, city Dionysia which was the their festival their city festival in honor of the god Dionysus where all of the greek tragedies that we have emerge from that context it was a competition the three greatest playwrights of the year would stage their trilogies of plays and then they were awarded you know first second third um, so the poetry that, slam is basically, you know, an ancient venerable tradition. Is that basically what we're saying here? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Well, and I think you actually, you know, in perhaps a uh, less, I don't know what you, I don't, I don't know how to say this nicely, but in like a less refined form, I think you do see um, some of this in like rap music today. Like there's, there's kind of an ethos of mm -hmm. one-upsmanship like in rap that's con like I'm, I'm thinking about uh, like I don't know if you're familiar with G-Eazy but he has a song called Bin On where it's basically about <laughs> you know everything that he's done now all of his like you know people that want to be just like him are are doing these things that he's done and it's like that's the shit I've been on yep you know um, it's a it's, it's a pretty like standard it's a standard rap move to like start dissing the competition absolutely Totally, totally. Yeah. And, I, and I just wonder if there's something, I think the deeper question there is like, well, is that already, always already in the, the art form itself? Like, do you well, actually, is there such a thing as non-competitive poetry? It's, you know, it's funny because I've always thought that the, uh, the moment when the battle of the bands started was where music started to take a real decline in a certain way, or at least the, the mainstream did. And um, because from my point of view, you know, the aesthetics of music is so various that the idea that you could have a winner, you know, is is really problematic in my book. But I'm starting to see that it is an inherent kind of dynamic that occurs if you become passionate about an art form such as poetry. Well, then you're going to be inspired by the great poets, right? You're going to want to be like them. But of course... If you, you can't just copy them, you can't just be them, right? In some way or another, you have to distinguish yourself if you're going to be a great poet. And so you just naturally fall into the position of having to some way or another um, distinguish yourself and to do something, well, better. I mean, you know, you could say better or different or new, perhaps, right? I'm, I'm sure that there are those who felt like I want to outdo. There would be moments of, you know, you have that, that competition between, what was it, Mozart and what was the name of the guy that was, uh, um, it was the subject of a play many years ago, Amadeus, oh. I think. And his, his name was... Yeah, I'm not sure. I can't remember who what his name was, but he was, you know, a, a well-known composer of the time, but not someone who ended up going into... Uh, what would you call it? Like the uh, the classical uh, classical Hall of Fame. <laughs> sure. Uh, and he kind of knew it at the time, you know. So there was that um, dynamic of those who are in the field at the same time, kind of hashing it out. But you know, when you're dealing with the greats, like let's say, for example, within the realm of physics, everyone thinks about Einstein, right? That that's that's kind of on some level, it, he was held high as a uh, as a figure who dominated the field. And anyone who wants to uh, play ball on that field is going to have to, in some way or another, improve on or significantly add to what he accomplished, 
right? That's the well. I mean, even talk about it in science, these things as you know, revolutions or overthrows. Yeah, you know? absolutely. Um, and that that is, so has a lot to do with the progression of of human thought. It, that's the way that that culture and civilization changes is on the basis of of these. Uh, the changing of the guard, right? What is it? The structure of scientific revolutions, Thomas Kuhn, that science pr uh, progresses one coffin at a time, something along those lines, that there, there is a, uh, a period where the greats are great, and then they kind of get kicked upstairs into further and further up into the attic, more dusty and dusty regions where, you know, only those who have the patience and diligence to go up there and dust it off and figure out how to read that stuff again will get reacquainted. I mean, I really admire the extent to which you've gotten familiar with the classics. It's something that uh, a part of me wishes I had spent the time doing, but uh, apparently not a significant, large enough part of me to have actually done it. So I really do admire. Well, that. there's certainly trade-offs, right? You know, it's like you kind <laughs> of the the great the great the great great trade-off of specialization is kind of a lack of gener generality, and I <laughs> I would say that you know that's just one of the prices you pay. I, I just going back, I can't help but smiling because one of the one of the Heraclitus fragments, um, he says, um, "War is the father and the king of all. He makes some uh, some men he makes gods and others he makes paupers um, and." Mm -hmm. Um, war is maybe the wrong translation of that word. It's polemos, which means more just like conflict or contest. Hmm. Um, and it's very, it's very much this thing that we've been describing sort of in science and in music and in poetry, you know, going all the way back to that pre-Socratic, you know, I forget, I forget exactly how he does it, but Heidegger, um, really like i think he te taught a whole course on that fragment or perhaps just maybe a, a couple of different fragments on on from heraclitus and i think one of the things that he really does there uh that he does really well is unify like this sort of notion of polemos conflict with like a more general sort of notion of logos and he does so by, by leaning really deeply on the ancient etymologies of some of these words, uh, logos really pri like primordially, like the process legain means to gather sticks, like in a sort of very ancient context, context. Hmm. like you'd be walking through a field gathering sticks. And um, it's that process that comes to mean like the gathering of letters into words and the gathering of words into phrases is sort of how it comes to mean to speak or to reason or whatever. Um, and at the same time, uh, Heidegger notes that it's, it's always conflict, especially in the ancient Greek world that really united the, either the, the Greek city states together against Persia, say, or united them as coalitions against one another and saw that this process of legging or gathering is intimately bound up with, um, with. Um, with conflict and thus yes. like the assembly even of words is already a conflict because you could have chosen one word over another um, or one sentence over another. And of course the grammar and structure of language is going to really uh, change in many respects the kinds of formulations that, that occur most naturally and will uh, make other formulations less likely. But this brings uh, up uh, an interesting kind of bridge to some of the things I've been thinking about, which have to do with the condition we find ourselves in now, where you could say that we are in a civilization that is rife with conflict, conflict within itself. 
And, uh, and it is really, I think, um, you know, the entire project of Western civilization right now is threatening to come apart at the seams. And it could uh, potentially um, uh, turn us all into paupers if we're not uh, careful and, and wise. And I'm not seeing a lot of care or wisdom happening at the higher levels of, <laughs> of our uh, civilization. So it's really concerning. Um, and that whole gathering together thing is also, I think, interesting in the notion of whatever it is you're gathering, you're trying to make sense of it. It's like you're gathering together the pieces of a puzzle, right? And so when you find a piece of something intellectually, you're trying to figure out, well, how does it relate with everything else, you know? And so we're at a, at a point now where I think we're having a, a real difficult time with that. You might say that the, the whole sense-making project is an effort to try to pick up the pieces and, and find a path towards restoration here. Because, you know, we are increasingly uh, finding ourselves in competition. I mean, it really is turning into a showdown with China right now. And, and China, yeah. you know, wh whatever you might say uh, critically against them, they certainly have a, a coherent uh, venture. They, they know what they're doing. And at this point, we don't. So we've really got to, uh, uh, got to get our heads screwed on straight here. Yeah, this, this is, an, I think it's really easy to, especially for, for those of us that have spent a lot of time studying the past, it's, it's really easy to idealize it and, you know, kind of put it on a pedestal. But, you know, like the reality is, is that, you know, when Homer was writing the Iliad, it was basically the case that you'd plant your crops and then you'd go on war raids and you would try to sack as many cities as possible and kill as many men as possible so that you could gather their herds and goods. And if you didn't do that, you wouldn't have enough to survive the winter, you know? And so it's like, there was a real sense in which war and death and evil was just part of life um, at that time. And I think that the West sort of emerges, I think from like a recognition that that is really kind of like shocking you know, because life is also so beautiful and yet it requires such a horrible cycle of violence in order to just survive it, you know, through the cold months every year. Right. And I wonder if like the sort of pr the problem that we have and like, it's like, how do you even call this a problem? But it's like, things are so good, you know, and we've just totally lost the perspective on how bad things can be. And that's allowed us to kind of sort of let petty infighting, um, get in the way of like the broader human project that I think like the West actually orients itself to. Right. Um, and it's like, well, I, I don't wish us to go back to a time when, you know, just for example, we didn't have air conditioning or, <laughs> right. you know, I needed to literally have violent conflict with, form with my neighbors over who would to get make to it through the winter. The, yeah. 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 I mean, yeah. Th that's a great argument for, uh, for the classical education, because fundamentally what you're doing is you're, you're having an understanding of a way of life that is, yes, the, uh, the root of our civilization, but from which we've found other solutions that that shouldn't really uh, be as I mean okay we have to admit though that the West has exploited other nations so we have essentially done the same thing in in being able to have access to resource at bargain basement prices at the cost of uh, many of the local populations, quite often supporting dictatorships and brutalizing regimes. 
So you could make the case that really we, we haven't strayed that far from it. What we've done is we've created a, a, wa a barrier between ourselves and, and the process. Whereas, you know, in the past, these men would literally be on the front lines every year making their best efforts to, uh, to preserve their families. It's that simple, you know? In some sense, we've sort of, we've sort of put the evil upstairs. It used to be like we were sort of all complicit in it, and right. now it's just those people, nameless corp <laughs> corporations, and yeah, yeah, those people. I mean, I was yeah, it's someone else, but it's it's not someone else because because we're all we're all involved in it in one way or another. Right. No, totally, and that's the thing. That's the thing is that we are complicit in it all. I was learning about the um, sort of the the history of the petrodollar. Yeah. And sort of the the what the basically the source of all these foreign wars was an agreement that we got either Saudi Arabia or maybe all of OPEC to sign that the only currency you could buy oil in was going to be the U.S. dollar after we had gone off the gold standard to artificially bolster the price of our currency against the rest of the world's while at the same time we got to kept keep the money printer going and kept inflating our currency and yet its value didn't go down because of this and then we have to fight all of these foreign wars to ensure i mean basically as i understand it every like the both gulf wars and you know some of the other conflicts were basically about well these dictators just started accepting a currency other than the US dollar for their oil that's right and we couldn't allow that to happen because then the charade you know would end and it's like yep yeah i mean i think you're i mean you're totally right to say did, boy did we exploit other nations and it's like yeah we did not only are all, all of the rest of the world who was reliant on the value of the US dollar or had to, you know, suffer the the consequences of buying US dollars to to purchase oil, but then like the actual countries that we had to go to war with over it, it's 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 quite disturbing. It's really disturbing. And the consequences are are severe. And it seems like the whole thing really is kind of coming to a head right now. Cause the US is basically backing out of Syria. I think that it's been recognized that that was a failure and, and you know, it was yet another incredibly uh, disastrous move on the part of the U.S. to try to prevent that from going the way it was going. And, and similarly, uh, in Ukraine, it looks like uh, the U.S. is going to have to back off of that. And in Afghanistan, it looks like the U.S. will probably pull out. I saw a very interesting commentary recently uh, by one of the members of the Duran who was talking about how many of the policies that Trump wanted to implement are now being implemented. And at the time when Trump was suggesting them, they were considered racist or, or uh, inconceivable or some kind of capitulation to, to evil. Uh, and now, of course, uh, since uh, they got their man back in the office, you know, but what this means now for the petrodollar, I think, is... Uh, you know, it, it looks like the petrodollar is probably on its last legs. I think we should recognize that because this whole system has been so unfair on the world stage, that it's actually uh, uh, good that it would fall apart, that the consequences for this nation are going to be really severe, particularly if we can't have any clarity about what the hell's going on here? And it doesn't seem like the U.S. is really going to bow out gracefully and and give up its position as the global hegemon 
which really would be the right move to do right now. I think that there has to be an understanding that it's no longer a unipolar world and that the rest of the world really should have a right to self-determination. And the U.S. has yeah. a lot of blood on its hands, and yet our leadership don't seem to be able to uh, even conceive of having the conversation about this. They are they seem fixated on trying to preserve something something which can no longer be preserved. Yeah, it's it's one of those things that's a little bit of a noggin scratcher for me because we essentially control our own continent. We have a resource abundant nation with way more space than we could possibly fill with people in the next, I don't know, thousand years or more. Um, and part of me like is really attracted to what is now considered like the Trumpist sort of isolationist position. And it's like, well, why not let the the rest of the world go off and do its thing? We'll, we'll stick to our territory here. And it's big enough and vast enough for us to be able to ensure peace and tranquility for our citizens um, and high quality of life. And it's like, okay, maybe our goods and services are a little bit more expensive because we don't, you know, essentially outsource most of it to slave labor uh, in third world countries. But, you know, maybe that's, but it, at the, and the price that you pay is like, well, either China or Russia or both control the rest of the world then if right. you sort of leave them to their devices. And it's like, but what's so wrong with that is like sort of where I'm at, you know, it's like, why can't, why can't we like, what, what is the, really the motivating force behind we must be the world superpower. Well, I think it probably really does come down to some of the some of the issues that are at the core of that classical lifestyle where in order to make it through the winter in the lifestyle to which you were accustomed, you would go raiding and and fucking up other people's shit, so to speak. Excuse the French. Uh, yeah, totally. You know, uh, and that's that's the way it was done. Now, you know, what would it really look like if we tried to make a go of it by ourselves? I mean, I think that um, Peter Zihan, if I remember correctly, uh, if I'm pronouncing his name correctly, uh, makes that case. He basically says that what, what he sees happening demographically is that the United States is going to continue to withdraw, but will still be in a relatively strong position, whereas the rest of the world is going to kind of become a basket case. I, I'm not so sure that he's correct about that. I, I, there's some interesting aspects to, of his analysis, but it seems to me like it's a little flippant. Uh, there's there's some pretty serious stuff going on when it comes to the development of the military in China. Russia is obviously no slouch, and uh, the U.S. military is it, you know doesn't have a great record right now, and it doesn't seem that the the uh, allocation of the amount of funding for our military is so astronomical and what ends up happening yeah. as a result it doesn't seem to be pff, commensurate so there's a number of things to be concerned about i wouldn't you know i'm not sure the world would allow us to become uh you know it's sort of like well we went out there we screwed everyone up and uh, and now okay yeah we'll let you do your thing and we're just going to go back to our nice little resource rich pal you know place and <laughs> and you guys yeah I don't I don't know the worst rest of the world's going to allow that to happen particularly if we're being such idiots and and assholes on the world stage you know yeah. I mean yeah. at this point we 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 really should be quite contrite and and ashamed of of what our nation has done. And uh, and it doesn't seem like that's the attitude pretty much anywhere within the political landscape of the United States. 
you know, and and I think it's also worth mentioning, you know, when you're talking about this kind of thing that, well, you know, this is what it means to be at the top of the heap. It's not as if the United States has been more evil than other empires. It's just that that's what happens when you become the most powerful player on the board. You start doing terrible things. Yeah. Now, you know, we like to think that maybe different decisions could have been made, but you know, you see that that fundamentally, I mean, I think that's what the another thing that the classics teach you is that terrible decisions have to be made quite often. Right. There there is no like win win in every given situation. There are winners and losers and the the battle can get incredibly brutal. And so I think many of the policies that we can now recognize as being against our principles, they were arrived at for some somewhat rational reasons. And um you know, and it may not have been the best call in all cases. And I think at times some of it was based on on greed and some of it was just based on the exertion of power because we had the power and we could do it, which is never a good reason to do something. But nevertheless, you know, the 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 empire game is a brutal, horrible game. Yeah. And I don't think it's easy to unwind it in in a way that's that's gonna be good for anyone. Well, that keeps the empire or even some vestige of it alive. I mean, look at just what the process of decolonialization of the European powers did to them in the last century. I mean, it's like Europe used to be, I mean, it was Europe, right? And now it's like, I don't think that the if the European Union as a bloc had to actually fight for its life against, say, Russia and China and the United States or whatever, like it doesn't even necessarily like show up in that in in that list of like the great powers, you know. Well, and they're and having serious problems internally. And I think that you know it's right. not just Brexit. Well, and part of that is because of how do you well how do you handle decolonialization? One of the things that the French did was essentially give open borders to all of their former colonies, and um, right. And essentially, what that what that did was led to a complete loss of French identity in a very short period of time. And it was all legal. Like it wasn't like something like could be done. These were French citizens. They had been given French citizenship by virtue of their colonization. Um, and yeah. that's yeah, all, what happened to the all, French. And I mean, is uh, you know, correct me if I'm wrong, but all of this does kind of ring the Babylon bell, doesn't it? You know, like it oh, seems yeah. like there, there's really a, 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 a a kind of karmic quality to all this. It seems like divine justice is at play on some level. You know, as 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 terrible as it is to contemplate, and you know that we all want to make good decisions that will be good for our communities and and friends. And we're subject to the to the decisions that are made by people who we have no real influence over. And I was amazed to see something recently, a documentary that was made, I think, in the seventies during the Vietnam War, where people were uh, talking about what they thought about what was happening, and they were basically saying, "We have no voice. We have no. You know, these are Americans back." It wasn't that long ago, but on the other hand, you know, I think a lot of us feel like, well, we we've just lost our democracy recently. But I think that you know, for a long time, really, there the 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 citizenry really has never had a voice unless it just happens to co correspond with what the oligarchs want. You know? Yeah, totally. Well, I mean, this is this is one of the great you know the great flaws of liberalism is that on the guise of giving the people their freedom and their sovereign authority, you actually end up taking away, like you basically just let people choose between like a false dichotomy of choices. 
Um, yeah. And, you know, I think that that's one of the things that red or blue, red or blue. But the, but the thing is, is that it's all just purple anyway. Mm-hmm. Like, that's what one of the things that was so like hope, hope inspiring about Trump is like, this is somebody who actually broke the mold orange. and somehow managed to win himself. Yeah. Orange and somehow <laughs> managed the Duke to win of orange. <laughs> the primary uh, and then somehow managed to win himself the election. And I think, you know, like him or don't like him. Like, I'm not really trying to make a statement about him in particular. I am, I am, but I am making a statement that he actually represented for the first time in decades, perhaps, like a real genuine choice against that of, you know, whoever it is up top that pulls the strings. It's so Um, ironic. Because the simple fact of the matter is that, you know, I remember being six years old watching the presidential debate between Al Gore and George W. Bush and like, those guys were arguing about the same things that we're still arguing about here in 2020. And like, there's this, we've like built this game where we pretend like we have these conflicts on like social issues or economic issues. And like, they sort of just like we, we, and we pretend that we can make progress on them and that you can run on like this platform and you're going to make a change. And like all of a sudden you win and then wait, nothing happened. And yet we're still like, we had George Bush for eight years and we're having the same you know debate again between Obama and McCain and Obama and Romney. Yeah. It's just all show business. It's just all show it's business. literally just show business. Yeah. And, and Trump, it's fascinating because, you know, Trump is basically the showbiz businessman, you know, that that's what he is. And that's why I've always like felt like, I mean, he, he's, it's really it's like central casting. I mean that that dude was made for that part. I mean his freaking name is it. Trump, you know? He's the Trump card that came into this whole mess. It's just you can't make this stuff up. How how did I mean I I have a real hard time thinking of him as the genuine article and I think it's true like oh he represented that. He represented. But the the the, the thing is not the representation. Guy Debord in a, in a previous episode, I made reference to the same thing, I think. Uh, Guy Debord in The Society of Spectacle uses a Feuerbach quote where he, where he talks about preferring the signifier to the thing signified. And so we place all of this psychical energy into the representational and and have an incredible amount of, of disappointment when it fizzles and turns into nothing. But all we did is place our energy into something that's a representation, <laughs> how could it come to something? You know, right. the thing that blows my mind is how much money people are willing to pour into politicians, you know, particularly right. at a time when like, I mean, to, to me, it looks like all they're doing now is harvesting what remains of the middle class, <laughs> you know, because those are the only people who can afford to give politicians anything. And, you know, I mean, rich people obviously are donating at a, at a higher level, but basically the, the middle class is getting squeezed of what little they have, the little hope they have placed on a representational uh, figure who's supposed to, like Andrew Yang was someone who I signed up to follow because I thought he was an interesting character on the stage, you know? Yeah, he seemed yeah, to totally. repre- he, seemed, he represented a, uh, a kind of compromise between the left and the right, and that's why the left would never accept him. He made a fair amount of sense. I thought, I thought it was pretty interesting. But the amount of just ruthless, continual, and he's still doing it now in the in the mayoral run for New York. You just get email after email, like, we're almost there, folks. We just need another $50,000, you know, just nonstop. Nonstop they're doing yeah, it. Yeah, nonstop. 
There's um, one of the things that I, I was talking with my wife about last night is that it seems to that the the last few years have been an experiment in pay no heed to the man behind the curtain. Yeah. There have been a couple of glitches that have sort of happened that kind of indicate that the Wizard of Oz is not what he seems. And, you know, there's, I don't I don't know it in, in its original form as a speech, but there's a, a talk that Alan Watts gives where he talks about like the fundamental difference between the Hindu and the Westerner. And like the Westerner is running around, you know, trying to fix things and like saying, no, it's, it's all for real. It's for real. It's for real. <laughs> and the Hindu just looks at him and says like, what do you mean by that? Like life is sort of an illusion. And I think that one, I think we're having one of these moments where the, the West is actually, maybe this is the moment where we have the, 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 the wizard of Oz moment. Revelation revelation and we have to we have to realize uh, uh, this. otherwise known as otherwise known as apocalypse right <laughs> otherwise known as apocalypse. <laughs> the end of it all well the 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 removal of the veil reveal mm -hmm. you know so where where the veil has dropped or has been lifted i guess uh, right and and you see yeah it's sort of like the you know it's basically oh the curtain comes down <laughs> Yeah. So yeah, I mean, there's definitely something. So, what would you think of as being one of those glitches? Like, because there's a number of glitches going on yeah. right now that are kind of stunning. Number of glitches. So the the first thing that that I noticed was just like the complete and total incompetence at the level of like public health uh, in this country. Like, I get it. COVID was you know novel and new, and it's not every year that we have a pandemic. But you, the reason why we have public health officials is so that when once in a generation this thing happens, that it doesn't get mismanaged and mishandled. And like exactly. you know, even, you know, Fauci's emails, you know, being leaked that he knew about things like the lab leak hypothesis and the fact that the National Institute for Health was funding gain of func function research from that Wuhan laboratory as early as March of 2020 mm -hmm. and like chooses not to ask questions about it. Um, and basically, so like, like throws his weight behind, you know, against that hypothesis. Yeah, <laughs> that's. I mean, that guy should be. I, I mean, it, it's criminal behavior, really. It, whatever it is, it's it's a glitch moment where we realize that these oligarchs and these bureaucrats really don't know a lick about what what it is they're supposedly charged with doing. Well, here's the weird you know, thing. The, the other one that I think. I mean, before we move on to the next one. The, the strange thing is how it plays into the present geopolitical struggle, because it does make a very strong case against the Chinese government. Yeah. You know, so, I mean, I, I think that it would be a mistake for the West to focus on that too much. But I do think that Fauci should should be at the very least, he should be fired. Um, and I think, you know, he should be prosecuted, really. But it'll be very interesting to see what the fallout is from this, because it, it seems like there's also the potential for it to just turn into a big, what do they call it, nothing burger? Like, it just everything will yeah. kind of continue as if nothing had happened. <laughs> but that's the thing, is like, it, it seems that when these sort of things happen, they become nothing burgers. Yeah, you know, I mean, Every it's, time. It's incredible. And like the, So, like, I, I, I wouldn't even, I didn't, I wasn't really knowledgeable about 2008 and, it, and the crisis when it happened. I was just a kid, you know, um, and everything seemed fine to me. But the, the fact of the matter is, is that I don't believe anyone went to jail 
for anything that was going on. And how does that happen? Like, how is it that you, you allow like the financial industry to prop up in the, not only the US economy, but the entire world's economy on nothing more than a lie? And then yeah. the rug gets pulled out and basically the entire world falls into disarray and no one's held accountable. There's no, yeah. There's you know, no it's accountability. Like, the only, like who, who, who is the, you know, the, 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 the folks that got the punished the most were just, was just like a, you know, the mid-level management tier and lower of a few banks that happened to go bankrupt. Well, who got punished you know? the most were and, the people who lost their homes. Well, certainly, you know, and 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 just the damage to the economy in general that caused a lot of hurt and pain for for many people. But yeah, what what, I mean, what that indicates is the level of corruption within the system. It's a corrupt government. Yeah, that's what we're living in. Yeah, you know, and again, so it's a late stage Babylonian situation here. Yeah, I hate to bring it down to the. I mean, we were having a really nice conversation in the beginning about classics. And now we're talking about this horrible stuff. Well, in some sense, like this is, this is sort of where it all has to lead, yeah. right? It's like, was we were, what we were discussing was, you know, the sort of the conflict that's innate in the development of Western literature. And, you know, the West is Western literature in, in some you know, yeah. deep sense. And we're following the, following the mold. At some point, like these conflicts have to bubble. Yeah. They have to bubble to the surface and, and, you know, something has to happen, I guess. Well, that is the big question. You know, a few few of the other glitches, just because they're just because they're worth mentioning. Yeah, more glitches. I thought that um, the meme stocks, particularly GameStop, AMC, some of these other these short squeezes earlier in the year that have just the short squeezes are over and the prices continue to rise. Yeah, um, is another just indication of. Um, I mean, in some sense, it's not so much a glitch of like the system. It's I think the glitch on the other side. It's like, you know. Dorothy and the Tin Man and the, the the and the Lion and the Scarecrow sort of realizing, oh wait, there is a guy behind the curtain. We can do stuff, and right. like it has an effect. And right. that the so the meme stocks continuing to soar up, particularly AMC in this past week. Um, and again, glitch. what it what it reveals ultimately is the corruption of the system, where all of a sudden the games that were being played by the big guys, once the little guys started playing them, they were like, no, you can't do that. No, we can't let you. We, we can't right. let you buy. We're going to shut down your capacity to actually buy this stock. It's just like, right? Corruption. It's corruption. It's corruption. Yeah. Or even, or even the fact that it, you would have legitimate financial leaders questioning whether or not the kind of organization that you were finding on a subreddit was legal activity. Right. You know, and it's like the the fact that that's even questionable is so laughable given the fact that, you know, I mean, I think the guy, one of the guys that I heard say that was like the, the great and notorious, uh, I'm totally blanking on the name, but he's a short seller who has just a propensity to issue these reports and crash stocks, you know, by 50% or whatever, and then buy up a bunch of it because he knows it's a because he knows it's, you know, an overreaction and then make money on the flip. The guy from the, from the, from the, uh, the big short. Uh, uh, his name is eluding me right now, but I know uh, Michael Burry. Is that it? Yeah, different d- different guy from this. I'm thinking like okay. Citrone or or Lemon or so- something okay, about yeah, the word Lemon or Citrone. I don't follow that coming, world that much. Huh. Yeah, it's fascinating. I mean, of course, you know, a lot of people did get burned on that. You know, a lot uh, many of the of the little investors. You know, I mean, that's how that kind of thing works. So it's understandable that there would be a lot of criticism of it. 
but uh, yeah. but that it wouldn't be allowed. I mean, they ultimately ended up allowing it, but it was a it was a battle, right? Right, right. It's one of those things. It's like we have supposedly like in liberalism, we have these, I mean, it goes back to the Donald Trump example. It's like, well, we have this theoretical right to vote and to elect our leaders. And we have this theoretical right to engage in, you know, um, in consensual commerce. And yet sometimes like when, like the people actually try to do what they ostensibly have the right to do, um, you know, the institution shows up and is like, Hey, that's, that's not allowed, or uh, you're allowed to buy these stocks over here, but uh, you know these these companies were supposed to go bankrupt, so please leave them alone. Um, well, yeah, it's. it's uh, I mean, and the other thing that's really ironic about it. Well, first of all, you have another bizarre moment, just like with the name Trump, GameStop, like, yeah, that that's the whole game. Like, what what stopped this whole game? Like, it, you can't make it up. But the other thing, of course, is like. Well, yeah, of course, GameStop, it really probably should go out of business. I mean, it, it doesn't have a good business model. You know, the malls are all collapsing. So that right. that stock would rocket up is another indication of just how screwed up our markets are and that it's nothing but speculation, manipulation, having nothing to do with anything on the ground. You know, it's all this right. abstract manipulation, but what's actually happening on the ground, people are forgetting that there's a reality out there. You know, the whole crypto thing right. too is like, everyone's just trying to jump on whatever it is that's going to ride up. And and ultimately, I think all this is incredibly destructive to the economy, incredibly destructive to the to the real economy and to the currency, quite frankly. Which so I'm really, I'm really curious about your, your, your thoughts or position on cryptocurrencies in general, Bitcoin in particular. Well, I mean, I don't really have a hard position on it. I, I did buy a little bit of it, but I'm I'm not like uh, a crypto enthusiast. You know, my sense is that the original mission of uh, Bitcoin has long been lost, and the idea that it was going to be a, a, a hedge against banking control of the world is a pipe dream. You know, now they've got future markets uh, attached to it and huge institutional investors involved. And those guys are going to, I mean, once they have the amount of money they have into it, they can move that thing how they want it to move. You know, it's going to be like right. any other market because they can get their hands on it in various ways. And then it also has to be acknowledged like, well, first of all, you take a look at the basic. Uh, the, the idea that it would be a anonymous transaction, well, that, that's already been shown not to be true. The idea that it would be instantaneous, right. also not true. The idea yeah, that it would be cheap, <laughs> incredibly expensive, right? And then, well, it depends on how much money you're moving, I guess. That's true. But nevertheless, compared to some of the other cryptos, it's very expensive, the transactions in Bitcoin. Right. So, right. Uh, so you know, many, and then you know, now you got people like Max Kaiser running around talking about store of value and all that kind of crap, and it's digital digital gold. It's like, how can you have a store of value with a with a with an, uh, a uh, a commodity that has gyrations that fluctuate, you know, twenty thousand dollars <laughs> within a within a couple of weeks? You know, like that's not a store of value. But then you have to wonder, okay, well, uh, China has an incredibly large number of the of the miners right and yeah. yet and yet they don't i don't think they allow their citizens to hold bitcoin it's i think it's illegal to they hold. don't allow their corporations to that but, individual but, investors are, are welcome to but corporations are not allowed to buy sell or transact interesting in cryptocurrency. but but individuals in china are 
allowed to own Bitcoin. Mm-hmm. Okay, that's interesting. Mm-hmm. Well, it seems it seems yeah, that, it's fascinating. You know, they're not they're not like no one's adopting Bitcoin as their national currency. So uh, it'd be interesting if anyone does. I know that there are some other uh, currencies that that may be adopted as national currencies, and and some of those are pretty interesting. Uh, I think there mm-hmm. are a couple of serious projects that that are worth paying attention to. Like I think Cardano is worth looking at, and um, mm-hmm. and Hedera is also kind of interesting. Although I don't know that they've really managed to to get it going the way that they had hoped. But I think it's a very uh, confusing space, and my sense is that probably what's going to end up happening is that the powers that be are going to have uh, blockchain technology with with centralized control. Probably sure. something along those lines will be the upshot. There'll be some a lot of money made and a lot of money lost in in the meantime while it all gets hashed out. And I'm terrible at those types of things. I just have this <laughs> terrible, and you know, my timing is so bad. So I haven't lost my shirt on it, but I, I really screwed up and 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 missed the opportunity to make some money on it. But oh well, <laughs> you know, yeah, it's yeah. it's. Uh, I'm not sure if it's a great way to think about making money. I, I've never, I've never been a fan of speculation as a, as a, uh, a means to make a living. Yeah. Bitcoin's an interesting one. I think that my ultimate Bitcoin thesis is that at some point we're going to wake up and realize that the full faith and credit of any nation state in the year, you know, in the 21st century is not worth anything. And thus I mean, especially in the United States, like, I mean, if the petrodollar really does, if that fails and we continue to print money and spend money the way that we are doing, like there is no hope for the U.S. dollar and assets that are held in U.S. dollars are going to go to zero. That's right. And like, you don't just get to have that happen without some sort of economic rollover effect on the rest of the world. You know, countries that are dependent, say, on U.S. exports or imports or whatever. And so my my ultimate kind of thesis about Bitcoin is I I, I would consider myself more on the maximalist side hmm. of of the of the Bitcoin thesis, and it's the, it's not really one for oh like the technology is the best or or anything like that, but rather in sort of like an apocalyptic moment where world governments have proven that their faith and credit is worth nothing people that are really trying to, you know, transact in goods and services and store the the wealth that they've accumulated for their lives are going to look around for something to purchase. Right. And there's only a few asset classes that could actually fill the void in the event of some sort of, you know, really great, you know, some great collapse of the US dollar. And I think Bitcoin sort of fits the bill for one of those things that not necessarily has to be turned to, but could be turned to hmm. um, in that event. And like, then you start to really see, well, well, that's really interesting now because it's not like there's really an, like, I mean, you could, you can, if you want just the same way that you might go and, you know, purchase an illegal substance, you can go purchase Bitcoin totally off the radar from folks in cash, you know, behind a, you know, a CVS somewhere. Mm-hmm. And I think that, when that happens at enough scale, even if the even if the countries try to clamp down to prevent it, someone somewhere is going to say, you know what, I've got a nation, I've got a national currency, everyone knows it's worth nothing, I'm going on the Bitcoin standard. And that government, and maybe it's a small government in Eastern Europe or somewhere random, but I think that that's like the first domino to fall. Um, and I would say that I actually do have 
hopes for kind of Bitcoin as a global reserve currency. And that's the sort of bet that, that I have and hmm. have been thinking about for the last few years. Well, I mean, it's certainly not, it's not impossible. Uh, I just, I know that it's been said that uh, the real strength of a currency comes uh, with the military that backs it. So the yeah. question is, what is, what's the strong arm behind Bitcoin? You know, and there, there's enough, right. there are enough people who have made billions of dollars off of Bitcoin that they could actually probably put together a pretty decent military if they wanted to. Uh, but yeah, I think, totally. <laughs> so, but there's just a bunch uh, of libertarians. You know, they're just probably sticking their feet up, smoking pot, and living yeah, life. You know. Yeah, I don't think libertarians are all that great at, at uh, forming military units and what have you. They're, they're more likely to just kick back and with their cigars and their uh, yeah, what have you. I don't. I don't know. I mean, we'll see what happens. You know, I think it's not a bad hedge. I guess I'd say, you know, that's part of the reason yeah. why I bought some because I do think that the there's an inevitability to the decline of the petrodollar and that the dollar will eventually be toast, particularly the way it's yeah. being abused. You know, it's it's so long in the tooth. You know, it's just unbelievable. But uh, what's going to happen in its stead? Boy, I just, I don't know. I mean, it's not a bad bet to say something in the crypto space will be it. But I, I'm not sure about whether it'd be Bitcoin or, or uh, I mean, you know, my sense is that it probably won't be any of the big players right now. But but that's just my yeah. gut instinct, you know. I, I think there's sort of two revolutions going on at once in the crypto space, and there's like a technological revolution, and then there's the monetary one. And what's clear to me, at least to me, is that Bitcoin is not really about the technology that makes bitcoin possible it's far more about like the monetary implic like the the community around bitcoin is trying to make bitcoin money right they're not trying to make it you know a distributed computing platform capable of x y and z you know um and so i think like there's certainly room for like a number of quote-unquote winners in and it's not a it's not a win like a zero-sum game by any stretch of the imagination but yeah, but but my sense is that some of the, some of the di distributed computing stuff is really kind of intriguing. I think, especially in light of some of the abuses of the the cloud providers that we saw, and maybe we talked about the last time we we talked with the whole parlor situation. If all of that were you know built on a distributed computing platform like Ethereum or something, like that'd be cool, you know, like that that kind of thing can't be done. Um, at the same time. Is that really like it's it's like it's the future in some sense, and it's and it's intriguing, and it and it does give us some, you know, an an additional layer of of security against you know kind of oligarchic forces like big tech companies. But to really hit them where it hurts, it's not oh yeah, I've got a distributed cloud. It's no no no, I've got I've got money that the Fed can't, you know, counterfeit essentially, right or or borrow with the or, or lend without the intention of ever getting that money back right um, and i think that that's the i think there's some intriguing there's some intriguing things there i think that some of some of some of like the principles that underlie like sort of like crypto anarchism or even like um and i'm not one of those people i'm definitely not like an ancap or an anarcho-capitalist or anything like that but i do think that some of the principles from those ideologies are very interesting sort of bulwarks against like the fake kind of liberty that liberalism touts 
Mm-hmm. And I'm really just interested, you know, it would be the first thing to see what happens in the, in the direct confrontation between like a real anarcho-capitalist, crypto-anarchist, libertarian freedom and a liberal, like liberalism freedom when they come head to head, who wins and which do we choose, right? Because they're not both without their trade-offs. Right. Well, it's also, I think, worth considering the the role that freedom plays in, in the Western tradition and the question uh, as to whether or not that's ever been truly realized or if it's been kind right. of a, a myth that we've that we've clung to a cherished idea that um, that now I think is, we recognize is being increasingly challenged by the systems that we've designed in order to maintain uh, our civilization. So you know, there's all kinds of encroachments that have happened, and now we're starting to see that it's not just a matter of surveillance, but there are there are serious uh, consequences to people saying the wrong words, <laughs> for instance. Yeah. You know, so yeah. the the freedom freedom of speech is really uh, it's kind of gone. You know, it really it's no longer no longer a principle in this country. Um, right. And. Uh, and so one has to wonder uh, what exactly is that telling us? You know, my tendency is to place it within kind of an evolutionary biology perspective where if in the past we saw the aggregation of cells, it had to uh, follow kind of a, uh, a, a coordinated program in order to become cell collectives, which would eventually become higher organisms, bodies in essence. So the, the limitation in the behavior of the, of the cells was managed by networks. It was managed by uh, the neural network within these bodies. And I think a similar type of thing has happened in a specialized society, human societies. We have very large populations that need to be managed. And so there's been ever-increasing efforts to find ways of controlling the individual within society so as to, you know, and that's why I think China has an advantage. China went through this, the horrible contortions of the social revolution. And and so they have still a very visceral memory of just how bad things are when social order falls apart. And so they're more willing, I think, to accept uh, some limitations on their freedoms in order to have a somewhat functional system. And in this, in our, in our civilization, we're, you know, we haven't had that kind of more immediate trauma of having society collapse. Uh, and, uh, and we have these, uh, ideals that we, that we cling to that are very noble. And, and obviously, uh, for many of us are kind of the cornerstone of our lives to be able to exercise our freedoms and what have you. But may be somewhat um, incommensurate with the with the circumstances that we find ourselves in as these you know deeply integrated technological civilizations uh, and groups that are that are trying to you know make 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 stuff happen. So I think it was recognized even by you know um, uh, Turing, Alan Turing, that the the development of the computer was essentially for the purpose of controlling human beings. That that would that's what it would be mm-hmm. used for. And so the idea that a cryptocurrency would be uh, a liberating technology, I think, is is naive. Honestly, um, these are going to be systems of of control to a degree that we really have you know that have previously only been explored in science fiction. But we see it implemented already now in China. Yeah. So you know now you can lose your job for saying the wrong word. But now you know all of that can be 
automated within a cryptocurrency system. Right. So, you know, the, the, like that's that's the reason why I think it's extremely unlikely that that these peer-to-peer networks are going to be the ones that that um, succeed because fundamentally they're not going to have the the kind of uh, coordinated power that centralized systems will have. This is one of this is one of the interesting. I'm gonna I'm about to take a really roundabout uh, line of thinking here, but I think it's I think it's totally worth trying to articulate what's at least like in my head right now. You talked about freedom and like the the this at least the kind of freedom, and I think we've talked about this before. The kind of freedom that we suppose we have today is not an ancient kind of thing uh, of freedom. We, I mean, enshrined in our Declaration of Independence is the dogmatic assertion that we are endowed with our creator, by our creator, with certain unalienable rights, among them life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Like we already have them, supposedly. And all we need is some administrative state to ensure that we get to exercise them, right? Like you are already free. I'm already free. We just need a government to ensure that you know, our neighbors don't encroach on our freedom. Well, yeah, it's not so much that, that we have the right to exercise them, it's that they will not be infringed upon, they, you know, right. which I think is a, a distinction that's worth making because, of course, all of those statements are ultimately true. We do all have that right to, you know, to basically be free, but there are consequences. <laughs> you well, know, this is, this, is where, this is where I think that the, the, the ancients had a different point of view that's worth... I think completely going back to and, and scrapping the modern notion because like hmm. what they would say is that actually what you have, you know, if the, to change their, the terminology of endowed by your creator to sort of like innate in human nature is actually a sort of slavishness hmm. and a slavery to the appetites. And, you know, the philosophers going back to Plato, you know, are, you know, urge a, a sort of, um, living of a leveled lifestyle where you keep the the passions in check and it's it's precisely through the development of 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 virtue and the development of the intellect that you actually become free this is why the liberal arts are called what they are these are the arts that when you study them make you a free man austerity and capable of engaging yeah and ca- make you capable of engaging in the world hmm. and I think that that point of view is is the one that we need to go on. And it's like to constantly look around for your own slavishnesses hmm. and to to root them out through the development of virtue and through the development of the intellect and through the development of, you know, of mind and caring and love and all of these great, you know, Western virtues that we have. Now, to bring this back to the point about the cryptocurrencies, what's so intriguing to me about the sort of crypto anarchic movement is it goes back, you know, maybe like 30 years at this point. And these were, you know, you know, they're 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 anarchists fundamentally at their root and core. And what they were seeking to do was was use digital technology like to have the one up on the usage of digital technology um, and to use it to bestow a a kind of a kind of unitary freedom on the users of these technologies that would either keep them invisible in their online lives, or that would enable them to share information that they could know guaranteed could only be read by the person it was meant to be shared with. And like, there was this idea that the usage of these tools is what would ensure freedom going on. And I actually find something like remarkably sort of resonant about that 
idea with what the ancients talked about. It's like the, the crypto anarchists like looked around for some slavishness in the human condition. And they saw it in this world of, of technology and they built some tools and built some practices to, to get rid of that little bit of, of slavishness. And I think like the onus is on the modern person to be like, yeah, I'm not going to take the easy road. And just because, you know, Google gives me a nice, beautiful interface, I'm going to use theirs versus, you know, something that actually protects me, but is more difficult to use or requires um, some kind of actual skill, perhaps with a computer, right? Skill and virtue in ancient Greek are the same word. Mm. Um, And so I think that there's something intriguing, at least about the idea of the project. Now, Hmm. you're totally right that in some sense, um, if you wanted to develop a currency where a central authority would be able to spy on everybody's expenditures, no matter what, like you could almost couldn't imagine something better than Bitcoin. But I think that this gets back to the, the virtue element of, of what was already embedded in the crypto anarchist was the idea, well, then you need to have the discipline to never use the same wallet twice, you know, and you need to have the discipline to to use these tools in such a way that you don't allow yourself to be traceable in any way back to any of your wallets. Um, And so I think that there's, um, there's, there's, there's a risk there, but it's the same risk that, that we all face. We want easy. So we, we use Google um, rather than, than building technical skill that actually could, could result in using these same things to be free of, of those who seek Mm. to do us harm. So somehow I was I managed to get that full circle. That's fascinating, and I I think we we should probably try to find a way to wind this up soon because uh, we're already I think over an hour and a half or something. Yeah, I actually I have a I, I my wife was probably uh, wondering where I am at this point. Yeah, so, I, yeah I probably um, should get going too. But I want to just make one quick little thing about well, if we go back to the evolutionary model, you know, there probably was a moment where the because basically. Evolution, evolution occurs on the basis of the behavior of cells, right? So you have uh, single-celled organisms, and then you have these cell collectives, right? And so there probably was a fair amount of tension at some point or another about, well, whether or not to be part of these cell collectives. And obviously, we see that some of them went with the cell collectives, and some of them didn't. We still have both of these things going now. And so I imagine it's going to be a parallel development where you have, um, you could say, the anarchic uh, libertarian strand who just simply refuse to be part of these larger systems, right? And then uh, others who fully hand themselves over, and there'll probably be some sort of stragglers, you know, some who might, let's say, like live within the body, (laughs) you know, Uh, because what is it? Like, I can't remember what the the number is, but it's actually kind of amazing how much stuff in Side of you isn't you, you know, and it's not just the food you eat. It's, there's a whole like uh, there's a whole, there's a whole e- ecology, basically. Yeah, a biosphere. Yeah. So, so it seems like something along those lines is likely to happen, and you know, the degree to which there's antagonism is going to, I think, determine an awful lot about what the experience of life is like. So, I think that if the uh, anarcho uh, uh, libertarians are uh, explicitly you know, one of the problems, of course, is that quite often totalitarian systems have a lot of punitive action against those who won't join, you know, and that, of course, incentivizes those who are outside of that system to 
exact revenge or to do raids or whatever it is that they need to do in order to you know continue it so once you set that kind of a dynamic up it gets pretty unpleasant you know but it might be possible for there to be a more harmonious uh coexistence if people are um are wise about how they proceed <laughs> yeah but anyway and at the end of the day too i i would just i i would say maybe as a final point that at the end of the day, it does, I think, in some sense, come back to one's to one's virtue. And like, if you really develop yourself and you you have courage and you have you know the strength of will, when you're presented with an opportunity to be complicit with evil or not, you'll have you know the gumption to not. And at, at the end of the day, that is the choice of each of each person. And right. um, I think at the end of the day, it. it it, it's all you know kind of simple while it's it's difficult um we we can choose to not participate um with these i mean i mean i think about the early martyrs like they they would rather die right than then those are the kind of choices yeah. we're talking about so you know amen yeah. to that and god willing we'll have the strength to make the right choice when the time comes totally yeah absolutely Thanks for listening. We look forward to serving you again soon. In the meantime, remember, turn that thing over a few times before you pick it up and take it home. <laughs>